Welcome. The Leadership Lesson Podcast inspires leadership growth in everyone. We have enthralling conversations with top leaders in order to provide you with life-changing lessons. My name is Caleb Nichols. I'm a speaker, a pastor, and a family man. My hope is to inspire spiritual depth and leadership growth in you. I love to sit down with leaders from a variety of fields, hear their personal stories and leadership experiences. This creates the podcast. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the Leadership Lessons podcast. Our guest today is Ian Harper. Ian is a professor of economics and director of the Melbourne Business School. Uh, he's also on the board of the Reserve Bank Australia. So looking forward to talking a bit about that today. This is actually my second interview uh, with Ian. So very excited to have you here, mate, and really appreciate your time again. Uh, this second interview, uh, we hung out a few years ago, but this second one, I'm really looking forward to talking uh, in light of this global pandemic. And uh, so welcome, mate. And uh, maybe we can start off with uh, a bit about your role uh, with the Reserve Bank. Uh, what is that role? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about how COVID is impacting our economy at the moment. Well, thanks, Caleb. It's a great privilege to be back with you. And thank you for the invitation to be part of your podcast series. Exciting. Uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia is Australia's central bank. Uh, what that means is that it is uh, a government body and a government authority. It's the government's bank. And the federal government holds its bank account with the Reserve Bank of Australia. And so uh, on the mechanical side of things, uh, people might notice, well, these days you don't tend to get checks from the government. They just put the money straight into your account. Uh, but if you do get a check from the government, then it will have across the top Reserve Bank of Australia because, of course, it's writing a check on its account with the Reserve Bank. Uh, but um, I don't have much to do, if anything, with the mechanical side of what the bank does. Uh, the board of the Reserve Bank, of which, as you point out to our listeners, uh, I'm a member, uh, the board of the Reserve Bank is appointed by the government to oversee monetary policy. Uh, and that's a sort of bigger set of responsibilities that the Reserve Bank has that I'll explain in a minute. Uh, but just, you know, to set the scene, the Reserve Bank is a government body. Uh, it is a bank. And so uh, people, you know, the government deposits money with it. Um, other banks deposit money with the central bank. So as they say, uh, it's the banker to the government and it's the banker to the banking system. Uh, but you and I, unless you happen to be an employee of the bank, can't hold an account with the Reserve Bank. And on the other side, you can't borrow money from the Reserve Bank. Uh, but of course... Uh, the government can borrow money from the Reserve Bank and the Reserve Bank can lend money to the banks and this and that. So it's part of um, Australia's financial system uh, sitting in the middle there, surrounded by the banks and then the various uh, other authorised deposit-taking institutions, as they're called, some of them who are banks and some of them who aren't, uh, and uh, other bodies in the financial system. So the board of the Reserve Bank, it's a statutory corporation, uh, has nine people on it, and uh, basically there are three who hold public offices. So there's the governor of the Reserve Bank, Dr. Philip Lowe. People might um, recognise that name, and you hear from Philip yes. from time to time as he speaks publicly. Uh, so Dr. Philip Lowe is the governor of the Reserve Bank, and he's the chairman of the board. And then there's a deputy governor, uh, Dr. Guy DeBell. In fact, they're both... Uh, PhD-trained economists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, wow. in the United States. Wow. So they're very, very uh, highly trained and very able 
men to occupy those positions. So the governor and the deputy governor, and then there's the secretary to the treasury, a man called Dr. Stephen Kennedy. Uh, Stephen is uh, an economist like me and also trained in the same school that I was trained at at ANU in Canberra. Uh, And Stephen holds his position on the board of the Reserve Bank as a result of his uh, official position as secretary to the Commonwealth Treasury. So there are those three there, as they say, ex officio. And then there are another six people, one of which uh, happens to be me. And those six people, the six Australians, are appointed by the treasurer on behalf of the government to serve five-year terms at different intervals, depends when they get appointed. And those people can be drawn from all sorts of different walks of life. Uh, You don't have to be an economist. I mean, I happen to be one. But there are people there who have been bankers, uh, property developers, farmers, um, people in the retail industry, people in the energy industry. Uh, So, you know, there's a wide range of um, professions, if you like, and skills that are brought to that body. The one thing you can't be is a banker. So you can't be on the board of another bank or an employee of a bank for obvious reasons. There'd be a conflict of interest in that case. That's the only thing the Act says. Other than that, uh, you can be coming from from wherever you like. And so the idea is that these nine people then bring to this question of how the Reserve Bank should conduct its monetary policy uh, all these different perspectives, professional economists who bring a sort of technical understanding, and then, you know, a bunch of Australians who bring a, a very wide perspective of what it might mean from their particular perspective, where, you know, where they sit how the what information they can bring to bear uh, on this decision. So I think that listeners should take some confidence that the institution is actually set up in a way which enables a wide perspective, a set of perspectives to be brought to bear on a decision which affects everybody. Really. And so, yeah. what is the decision? Well, monetary policy, as you know, many people who watch these things would know, uh, affects interest rates basically. Uh, so the the most obvious way in which you would um, know about what the Reserve Bank is doing is that you hear or suddenly you realise that your bank has uh, lowered the rate of interest that you're paying for your mortgage. Uh, Or a bank gets in touch with you and says, hey, would you like to borrow some money for a house? It's going cheap, right? We've lowered the interest rate. Uh, Or the other way around, we've raised the interest rate. So for most Australians, that's how they would interact with monetary policy. They're watching what happens to interest rates. Uh, If you know a little bit more about finance and you're a bit more involved, then, of course, there are influences of those interest rate decisions affect other financial prices like um, asset prices, i.e. house prices. People would notice that too. And then, of course, share prices, right? So um, there's a whole sort of wave of different effects that come uh, as you change something as central as the interest rate that the Reserve Bank charges or sets uh, on on its own liabilities. So, Caleb, um, there it is. That's what it does. It's, if you like, it's about interest rates. Uh, at the end of the day, the Reserve Bank is also responsible for the stability of Australia's financial system. And that's a way of saying uh, if, there are, if there's a need to support uh, financial markets because prices are wildly gyrating, uh, institutions getting into difficulty, then the Reserve Bank, along with the other regulators, like the prudential regulator, uh, and the securities regulator and the treasury itself would all start working together uh, to make sure that the Australian financial system was sound. 
Wow. Now you asked about the about can the I, current. Can I, can I stop you there for one moment before yeah. we head into the yeah. COVID stuff? It's a. It sounds like an incredible uh, team, a bit of an A team, yeah. the nine people. There. But 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 the, I think for the average Aussie, it's amazing because the impact mm-hmm. from that boardroom mm-hmm. uh, on our economy and a phenomenal. Uh, country yeah. like Australia, we're very wealthy, very affluent. Yeah. Uh, we're very lucky. You know, it's a lucky country. Mm-hmm. It's amazing mm-hmm. how uh, you can, and I know it's not this simple, but how something can be something that affects us all, and then country that we enjoy, the wealth mm-hmm. we enjoy, can be tied back to, mm-hmm. you know, almost to a boardroom, uh, and, yeah. and to the decisions that have quite an impact uh, on all the different sectors uh as you say is, is the, that there that sense in the room when you meet or is it just a job and there's that trust that the whole machine of australia just uh it moves forward or is that set or is there that sense for you and the team of uh uh i suppose it's almost sacred isn't it it's like you know affect normal Aussies every time you sit down like it's 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 some way well, it's very personal yeah Yes. The, the, uh, look, let me speak for myself. I obviously can't speak for my other fellow board members, although I don't imagine they'd they'd have a different view. Uh, one of the, and we've missed this since we've been meeting online, like everybody else with the pandemic. Uh, but when we're in normal mode, the Reserve Bank board meets at the headquarters of the Reserve Bank, which are in Sydney, at uh, the top of Martin Place, just near Macquarie Street, uh, near the New South Wales Parliament buildings. And the boardroom is uh, quite a, you know, very elaborate, large room, beautifully furnished. Uh, but when you come into the bank itself on from Martin Place, you walk in and there's a marble foyer. Uh, and up on one of the walls in brass letters that are embossed onto the marble is the excerpt from the Reserve Bank Act, which says what the responsibilities of the board are. And that is essentially to ensure price stability, which means keep the inflation rate right on the right target. Um, Full employment, in other words, make sure people have jobs, right, as much as you can possibly do. And then the third one is the, it says, the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. Wow. The economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia, that you're to use the powers that the board has to... um, uh, affect those benefits for Australian people. So I think the answer, Caleb, is it's very helpful whenever you walk in to that foyer as a member of that board. You know, you're sort of reminded in your face <laughs> before you get into the elevator, right, what yeah, it is wow. you're here to do. <laughs> and when it says economic welfare or economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia, that I think makes the point you're making that, yes. you know, if you thought this was just a nice cup of tea and a bit of a chat, then, yeah. um, you know, you better get your act together, right? Because it's it's uh, it's a good deal more than that. Having but said so- that, all of the discussions, as you might imagine, I mean, for a start, they're all minuted and there are other officials, yeah. you know, around yeah. the table, not as if you're just sitting in a corner having, as I say, a cup <laughs> of tea. The whole thing is um, is very formal. And yes. then when the, when the discussions take place, uh, they take place as you would expect. Uh, in that sort of environment, an audit conversation with people putting their points of view and contesting the points of view. You know, I don't, that's not how I see things and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And at the end of the day, uh, a decision is reached about what will happen with monetary policy, either 
the interest rate or in more recent times, other aspects of monetary policy. And the Act says that uh, each member of the board has one vote and the governor has two in the event that the, well, there's someone missing. So there are only eight people, for example, and then mm-hmm. it would be 50. Um, but normally there are all nine of us there. And so um, each member gets one vote. And that determines the decision, Caleb. Yeah. And the governor, as he's required to do under the Act, right, goes around the room one after the other, right, including the deputy and the secretary of the treasury. You know, Ian, what do you think? Hmm? Mark, what do you think? Guy, what do you think? <laughs> Carol, what do you think? One after the other. And then uh, at the end of the day, um, the votes are counted and the decision is made. So I think that people should take heart from the fact that the whole mechanism uh, is infused with the point you're making. Uh, it is a decision which affects every Australian. And when it comes down to the wire of making the decision, the whole environment and the discussion is conducive to the members taking that decision very seriously. Yeah. I, I do, I do uh, chair a couple of boards myself at a significantly lower level than what you're talking. Uh, but it, it's it, we very much live in an environment now, don't we, where even governance at my level, church, and I oversee a small um, private Christian school as well, our governance is taken very seriously and there's a high oh, yes. expectation that things are done very formally, even at my level. Uh, conflicts of interests and these kind of things are very important to state up front and what have you. And uh, so it's interesting to hear again that, that despite even the level you're at, it's a, it's a similar process. It comes down to a vote. What, what do you think, Ian? You know, you're, you're thinking of the Australian people, you're thinking of the economy. So what do you think when you hear people say things like, um, we don't have enough wealth in this country, or I'm missing out, or uh, I should get more welfare. Or when you hear this, you know, people are, it's, it's the classic uh, human scenario, isn't it? Human condition, when even despite we have so much in comparison, uh, I saw it during the week uh, when I was just reading a few articles leading up to this podcast that we're actually ranked number one. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I believe we rank number one in the world for average wealth uh, per person in Australia. So we're incredibly wealthy, but people still complain. That's the human condition, is it? What do you think when you hear that, when you when you and the guys there are trying so hard to make an amazing economic future for people and people are still not happy and they still don't have enough? Reminds you of Oliver Twist, doesn't it? Please, sir, I want some more. <laughs> <laughs> um, mind you, in Oliver's case, he could do with some more. He didn't have much to begin yeah, Probably, yeah. Um, um, look, I think the, the, the response to that, Caleb, is um, well to acknowledge, yes, that, look, we're all, you know, each of us struggles with that uh, and uh, people who study the attitudes of uh, people at different levels on the wealth spectrum point out that even if you have a, a lot, a very, very large amount of money, right, people will still say, they'll still compare themselves with, with others who are further up the tree and say, oh, yes, but I'm not as wealthy as that person. Right? Yes. And um, and everybody thinks, if you ask them, well, how much money would it take for you to be comfortable, for you to feel as though I've got enough, right? And the answer to that question, no matter where you are on the spectrum, is always oh, about another 25% or 30% more than I've got now. Mm-hmm. You know, e- even if you're a billionaire, it's sort of extraordinary. How, and a lot of that comes down to, as you say, the natural human condition that somehow or other 
uh, I'm you know not as well off as I might be. And if I just had that over mm. there, then I'd be fine. And we know that's a mirage. Mm. Those of us who've been around long enough to fall into that trap, uh, uh, hopefully <laughs> learn that lesson. Mm. But um, the more technical answer to what you're saying, Caleb, is that the Reserve Bank runs monetary policy, and monetary policy is only one of a variety of economic policies or instruments which, which not only can be but should be used to address a range of issues. There is, um, uh, well, look, formally in economics, that you know, there's, a, there's a, a formal rule, if you like, or proposition that you, uh, you cannot, you have to have as many independent instruments in order to meet the same number of targets. So if you've got two targets, you have to have two independent instruments, right? You've got three, you have to have three. And, and it, it's a bit like saying to a car mechanic that um, you can't just have one spanner, even if it's an adjustable spanner, right? You can't have one spanner and hope to do all the work that needs to be done in servicing a car engine. You know, you need to have, in some cases, as many different tools as there are different things that you have to do uh, for the engine, but you certainly just can't have one. And so monetary policy is one tool and uh, aspects of, of the economy, like you're talking about, you know, the distribution of income and wealth. That's not something that monetary policy can really affect. Hmm. Uh, it's not saying it doesn't have an influence, but you can't really use it to fix that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people say, well, you know, you're, you're making these decisions about interest rates and it's making some people very rich and other people are struggling and, you know, how dare you do that? Um, the problem is that even if it's true, you've got to say, well, yes, but this isn't the only instrument that we have, right? We have other instruments over here. Maybe mm-hmm. if I used a medical analogy, Caleb, um, you know, if you're having a, some sort of treatment for some condition and it has a noted side effect, like it might put your blood pressure up or something, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the doctor says, well, we're going to have to have you another drug here, which is going to control the blood pressure side effect. And you're saying, well, you know, I don't want high blood pressure. And the doctor, of course, says, you need to understand this. In order for us to fix the main problem, right, I have to do this. You take this pill. That's yeah. going to put your blood pressure up. Well, here, take the second pill and that's sort that out, right? And then we're sort of on track. But if you worry about the blood pressure, you're not going to get the main thing sorted out. So, so mm. we do need to have more than one instrument. And mm-hmm. generally, when it comes to people saying, I haven't got enough or I'm missing out or somebody else is doing better than I am, those are policies which are dealt with through the government's tax and social security mechanisms. So things like, um, you know, job keeper or job saver and the tax system. They mm. deal with that issue rather than monetary policy because, um, you know, to put a, make it quite obvious, there is only one interest rate and that interest rate affects everybody and you mm. can't use one instrument <laughs> to, mm. to differentiate, you know, in all these different circumstances that you're referring to. You can't do that. So what do mm. you do? Not move the interest rate? That's like saying, no, no, well, I'll take you off this main medicine here because of the side effects of blood pressure. And you can't do that because I came in to see you about the main problem. Yeah, so that's yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And uh, it's, it's, it's funny because whenever we complain, whenever we point the finger at humans, uh, it's, it's, generally, it's generally because of our own 
human ignorance, isn't it? It's, def it's often because of our own lack of understanding. And uh, it's interesting. It's great to hear a little bit about it because uh, I think for your average person listening to the podcast, uh, you know, that, that they don't know a lot about uh, the economy of Australia and how it runs. And uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to learn. I know one thing that people are concerned about is our economy and the impact, especially the future impact of COVID. Uh, yep. what, 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 where do you think the main impact of COVID uh, has really been on our economy and on our future? Well, Caleb, in the short term, uh, the obvious answer is that it's uh, the attempts to deal with the disease uh, have required our state governments and the federal government to some extent to um, massively restrict the movement of people. So what that has done is to affect the services sector of the economy much more so than the goods sector. So the services sector, which involves people interacting, so we're talking about you know cafes and restaurants, retail outlets where you have to go in, you can't just do it online. Uh, those parts of the of the economy have been quite severely constrained. Mm. Uh, other parts of the economy, like for example, our exports of iron ore and gas and so forth, have hardly been affected at all mm. uh, because there are very few people involved. A lot of it's done by machines, automatically loading ships and so forth. And where people are involved, um, for example, the sailors on the ships. Um, you know, they're at sea for 14 days. So by the time they get to the next port, they're automatically isolated and, and away they go. So those industries have been, haven't been unaffected, but far, far less affected. And as you would know, those retailers who've been able to go online, in some cases, they've done spectacularly well, much better yeah, than sure. they otherwise would have done because people are spending money. Oh, now's the time to go and get that new lounge suite or let's upgrade a television set because we're going to be sitting here watching movies every night or whatever. And some of these <laughs> places have done extremely well. So, so as Philip Lowe says, it, it's an uneven impact across the economy. Yeah. Uh, and the analogy that I sometimes use is a bit, it's like applying a tourniquet, right? You know, if, like you had a snake bite, right? Do they apply a tourniquet mm -hmm. to the limit of the economy? In this case, it's the services sector to try and slow up the circulation. Why? Well, you don't want people to get this illness, if you possibly can, until we've got the vaccination rates up. Yeah. And what that will do, obviously, is to slow down and the economy. It reduces the amount of work that's available for people, particularly in those sectors. The good news is that once we've gotten the vaccination rate up and you can let that tourniquet go, right? well, to pursue the analogy, the blood just runs straight back into the limb, right? The economy picks up really quickly once you're able to release the restraint, uh, which is taking the form of lockdowns and so forth. So the reason the government is saying, you know, please, please go and get vaccinated, get vaccinated as quickly as you can, is that that brings forward the day that we can release the tourniquet, we can get rid of these lockdowns, right? And people can get back to normal, their normal lives, let alone their normal economic activity. And as mm. they do, the jobs will come back and, you know, away we go. So yeah. all of that, uh, so at one level, you know, there's sort of bad news, which is in the yeah. short term, there are a lot of people who are going to be and are negatively affected by this, uh, losing hours, incomes down, you know, 
businesses folding yes. bad. On the other hand, when we get through this and get the vaccination rate up, uh, that can recover quite quickly. Now, I understand it isn't as easy for someone whose businesses has had to close to suddenly turn around and say, oh, well, we're going to open the business up again. I mean, sorry, it's mm. gone. Right? Yeah, that's true. I understand that. So is there any, you know, is this without scarring? Is there no evidence that we've been through this? Oh, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. So you take a further look down and you say, well, what are the longer term impacts of this? And and there's a long story to be told there, uh, mm. Kayla, but it, it, it will have scarring effects on our economy and it mm. will change things. Not all of these scars will be bad. There'll be some things that we've not, we were hesitating to do that we will now, we've sort of had to do and that they will open up all sorts of doors. Uh, mm. My own business is an example of that in higher education, that, um, you know, we've been staring at having to go online, putting courses online and so forth for years. And quite a few of my colleagues, and you know, including me, I'm a bit long in the tooth these days, you think, oh, really? Have I really got to do that? And there are some of my, you know, colleagues who, as they say, would lie down in front of bulldozers before putting their courses onto the internet. <laughs> well, those same colleagues, I let me pay them uh, a tribute. Within three weeks of the pandemic having broken, you know, they've gotten their act together. They've put their courses online so that their students can continue to be taught. Yeah, and well. once, you're, yeah, once you're through that gate, you know, once you've crossed that bridge, well, then you're on the other side. And so now sure. we'll be able to do online education, as I imagine you've been doing in the church as well, mm. in, in ways you, you, know, you knew you could, but you never thought you would. And now you yeah. do. And people discover, hey, I actually quite like some parts of this that I can, you know, visit other churches online and, I'm, you know, all the, there are some benefits to this as well. Yes, so that will change the way we do things. Um, the other thing that, that I guess I should mention is that we have obviously learned um, that uh, you, you've got to be cautious about how dependent you become mm. on supply lines from around the world, right? That there's no doubt that that can give you um, much greater efficiency. So, you know, we've given up producing various things because it's a whole lot cheaper to just yes. buy them from China, you know, sell mm. the Chinese the iron ore and buy these manufactured goods. You know? That's how come we get a whole lot of cheap stuff. Yeah. But when um, the pandemic breaks and we can't actually buy this, let alone any other sort of political tensions that there might be, just think about the pandemic, then suddenly you can find yourself, whoa, how are we going to produce these goods? You know, we can't import them and, you know, what's going to happen mm. now? Um, mm. Well, it doesn't mean that you suddenly shut yourself off and start doing everything yourself. That, that's sort of crazy, right? Mm. But, um, but, you, but you need to rethink that. Uh, and so we will, be, we will be redeveloping, right, some aspects of, say, manufacturing uh, in this country out of the <laughs> need to ensure that we have that capacity. Uh, yes, one example, okay. obviously, is, is, you know, vaccine manufacture. As it turns out, we already did a fair amount of that, but uh, we will do more of that uh, mm. in anticipation of making sure that we have the capacity so that we don't get caught again having yes. to rely on someone else to produce this stuff when they're saying, yeah, 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 we get you, right, you know, you're number 10 on the queue, you know, mm. just hang hang tight. And we're saying, hang tight, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that will change the way we do uh, some things in the manufacturing area. 
uh, and a lot of stuff will be online and stay online and people will change their work patterns. The whole idea of working nine to five is that's probably all gone. So, and and, and and a lot of people will welcome that and say, well, you know, mm-hmm. I've been struggling with a nine to five for years because it didn't suit me. I've got young children or, I, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the story might be. Now the idea that some people will be at the meeting in person, other people will be online and some people are doing it you know, here, there, whatever, that a lot of that will be considered just normal. Yeah. Um, and that will, will open so, up opportunities for participation in yes. the work community that have been closed. Uh, to mm. people who were, you know, physically unable to move around as much mm. uh, as other people. Mm. T- talking of uh, children, just you quickly mentioned them before. Mm. I've got four young children. We just had our fourth one this year, and uh, and my, my my little life group in my church uh, is, is a bunch mm. of dads, and we've all got young children. And uh, obviously, every week in our life group, we sit mm. around and solve the problems of the world, and mm. we've solved. We've solved the vaccine pandemic problems many times over oh, in our is, life group. Economic you send us an email, Caleb. <laughs> That's right. Economic issues we deal with every Wednesday night. But uh, the, the guys in my group, um, you, know, you know, you think about our children and you think about, the, I think the scarring is a uh, fantastic but sad in a way metaphor that you've used uh, for our children in the future. And I suppose our concern is, you know, we think of JobKeeper um, and all the money spent there that's got to be, paid back or recouped at some point. Uh, it, it seems that uh, governments all around the world uh, are just printing money uh, in, in order to uh, keep their economies afloat. Uh, well, what do you think that impact for the children will be in the future? Do you think it will be as dramatic as it seems or do you think that we will manage it over the journey and maybe the impact won't be as, as dramatic as, as, as it appears? Well, I can give you, let's say, one historical example. Uh, it, it's it's not a complete parallel, but it, I think it speaks to the question you're asking. You ought to talk to um, your grandparents about what life was like as a, a parent with young children uh, coming or well, living through the Second World War and then perhaps coming immediately after the Second World War. Right? Mm-hmm. And the Australian government had borrowed as a share of um, total output a whole lot more to bring the Australian people through the Second World War than it has this time to bring us through this pandemic. Another way to put that is that we came out of the Second World War with a whole lot of debt. And you could have been there like yourself, Caleb, and your uh, other men in your group thinking, oh, my goodness, right? What's going to happen to these young kids? They're going to cop all this. I mean, at least the war is now over, but we've got decades of having to pay all this back. You know, what's going to happen? Now, you just look at a bit of history and you see, of course, that the decades of the 1950s and 1960s were some of the most um, true. wealthy right? <laughs> and rapidly mm. growing, low unemployment right? decades mm. that we've experienced ever. Now, I'm not saying that we have, you can't just sort of, let's say as they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does mm-hmm. rhyme, right? And mm-hmm. in this instance, you've got the same sort of thing. You, 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 this experience sweeps aside a lot of obstacles. Uh, yes, it's true that the government has borrowed a lot of money. It had no alternative. And to be frank, 
if somebody said, oh, well, it would have been a whole lot better off if the government hadn't had JobKeeper and hadn't done this and that and just let us just ride this, right, mm -hmm. without any assistance, Caleb, that is a council of utter despair, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, if people are interested in reading some history, you want to go back and read the history of the of depression in this country in the 1890s and the late 19th century, when there was no federal government and there was no public support when we went into a deep recession then. You want to go and read that if you want to sort of, you know, scare yourself awake at night, that's for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that was a, in that experience, you know, people, people died of starvation in this country. Yeah, wow. So, so um, you don't want to go anywhere near that. But the, the government did the right thing in supporting, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, just setting aside the reserve, I'm going self-justification here, I'm talking about the Australian government, did the right thing in setting up JobKeeper and in spending money. And, and this is a conservative government. This is the Liberal Party. Most people think they would never spend anything, right? Well, they did this because, of course, you have no alternative, right, when the, when the times are down. Yeah. Um, but what I want to say to you, Caleb and, you, and your listeners, is that you look at that sweep of history and you see that, yes, of course, we came out of the Second World War with a lot of debt. But the Australian economy then embarked on a major period of growth. And part of the reason it did that is the government was investing to reconstruct the economy. And the private sector had a whole lot of opportunities that it could now pursue. Uh, partly because the circumstances had changed and people's tastes had changed and, you know, had, and away we went. Well, yeah. there'll be a version of the same thing, that we will have uh, much bigger opportunities, thinking about a whole lot of things opened up for us that we hadn't thought of before, new ways of doing things. Now, that doesn't mean you can just sit there and wait for that to happen. We do have to think about how those young kids you're talking about are properly trained and educated for this new world. We do have to open up opportunities for firms to invest in new online technologies and new ways of doing things, right? And then, so what happens about the debt well, what happens is what happened after the Second World War, mate. When the economy starts to grow, right, it will grow much faster than the interest payments that are due on the debt. Because mm -hmm. this debt has been borrowed at interest rates like, you know, one and a half percent for 30 mm -hmm. years, right? Two percent. Mm -hmm. For 30 years, the government has borrowed that. So ask yourself this question. Do you think the Australian economy right, is going to grow more slowly than one and a half percent per annum for 30 years. <laughs> and if the answer to that is, well, I don't suppose so, I think it's going to probably start growing again about, you know, three and a half, three, four, whatever, like it normally does, then you'd say, right, so how are you going to pay the debt back? Well, the answer is the economy is going to grow fast enough for that to occur. Right? Yeah. So, so I don't think that there's no council of despair here, but neither is there a council of complacency, right? Mm -hmm. So to those... You know, to you and the and your other fathers and my son uh, has two little little kids, so I'm you know directly affected by this. Um, you know, um, be of good cheer, right? <laughs> be hopeful that you know God gives us a hope and a future. He doesn't not out to destroy us. Right? And, and that hope and, and that hope and a future that will come that He's promised us, you know, in, in sort of mechanic terms, right? In real terms, you can grab a hold of is the fact that the economy will respond rapidly in the face of these new incentives. And right. the government will be encouraging that as well. The private sector is going, people are cashed up to the hilt, mm. looking to spend, right, you name it, whoosh, yeah. away we go. And well, those why are we so wealthy? Well, well, well why because we... we've got 
but, well, but why have the wealth things increased, increased Ian, even during yeah. the pandemic? Like uh, mm. if you own a home or homes and shares, mm. uh, you're, you, it, it just seems odd that, that wealth has increased while uh, we're in such a difficult uh, period well, of time with the nation. Yeah. Well, the main reason for that, Caleb, is that in this, the, well, I said, I mentioned the tourniquet before, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, the economist describes that by saying that this is therefore a supply side recession. So it's deliberately induced by the government, essentially, state government saying, hey, what? You've got to stay home, right? You can't go shopping, right? That is a supply side restriction. And so the activity in the economy is restricted by that. Once you remove that restriction, whoop, back it comes, right? Mm-hmm. Now, ordinarily, the recessions that we've experienced, particularly really bad ones, like the Great Depression in the 1930s, but even in more recent times, um, the, the severe downturn that we experienced, for example, in Victoria in 1990-91, the so-called recession that we had to have, right? Mm-hmm. In each of those cases, the financial system, the banking system, got into trouble. In Victoria in the 1990s, people will remember you know, the State Bank of Victoria went bankrupt after 149 years. The government's bank. Wow. And there was wow. a raft of building societies, you know, lost money. The Pyramid Building Society and others lost that they became insolvent. Now, the financial system, when the financial system gets into trouble, that's when you're really in strife, right? Because mm-hmm. that's when you can't get your money out of the bank. Uh the stock market is plummeting down, down, down like it did in 1929. And people's mm-hmm. wealth and house prices are falling. They can't pay the money for the mortgage because they've lost the job. They, the bank re- repossesses the house and then it can't get the mortgage back because the house prices come down and down, down, down. Right? That's the thing right? which, which destroys wealth. That's the nasty okay. thing. Now, okay. what we've done this time by supporting the financial system, through monetary policy, right, by keeping people's incomes up through JobKeeper, we've enabled two things to happen, Caleb. One, house prices haven't gone down, they've gone up. Share prices haven't gone down, they've gone up. People's income hasn't gone down because they've kept their jobs, even if they weren't working, and their incomes went up, right? Mm. And what that has done is to switch off through deliberate government policy, switch off the nasty compounding downdraft, which mm. we've experienced every other depression, right? Mm. Apart from this one. So that Amazing. one I have to say to you, Caleb, when you say it's surprising, you're right, because it hasn't been what's happened in the past. But mate, there, I really do have to say, you know, I really do have to say that economists, right? <laughs> I, we got this one right, right? We, we've yeah. seen how this has happened before. And we've heard, guys, income to people to keep their jobs. Make sure the banking system is sound, right? And then we'll get out of this once we can release the restrictions that are there for health reasons. To boil it down, Amazing. that was the recipe. And the recipe uh, is working. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I am definitely not complaining because my houses have gone up in value and... I had some smart friends that told me to buy some shares, which I did at the right time last year. It's just, it's, inc- it's, it's incredible. So now big yeah. congratulations, Ian, because uh, 
I found out as I was doing some research that you received uh, the Order of Australia last year. So well done. That's, no, that's, that, that's incredible. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Why, why did you uh, come up for that award? Uh, what was it for exactly? Uh, well, for a start, these things, as you know, they, they come out of the blue, right? That this is suddenly you get a letter from government house that says, oh, by the way, you know, <laughs> you've been awarded this <laughs> award, you know, would you like to accept? You sort of think, whoa, where did this come from? So some uh, kind, kind person or more than one, it's pretty, uh, you know, you've got to go through the hoops, I guess. Uh, but um, some kind people decided to nominate me and, and the committee uh, felt moved to recommend the award to the Governor-General and away we went. The, wow. um, the citation talks about my role uh, over the years in economic policy, mm -hmm. including monetary policies we've been talking about in this podcast. Uh, but I also had a bit to do over the years with setting minimum wages uh, with uh, recommending reforms to our competition laws. So I've sort of been around the traps a bit. So I think the answer yeah. is, the at least that's what the citation says, in making recommendations and involve, being involved in government uh, economic policy over the length of my career, uh, led them to say, you know what, we thought you'd done a good job. So here, take this. And I say, well, that's very kind. Thank you very well much. Done. It wasn't why I well did done. Well done. But it's <laughs> Could you, could you talk to us a little bit about the leadership side of all of these things you've been involved in, all these different roles, boards, uh, university, you're a professor, all these different things. Well, you know, what drives you, Ian, to be at the forefront, to be a leader, uh, to want to take on more responsibility? Um, thanks, Caleb. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, to some extent, I, I my experience has made that I've just been sort of drawn up into it, if you like, sucked up into it that um, it's a bit like sort of tap on the shoulder stuff. So somebody says, um, oh, well, why don't you do this? Right? And th that's the moment where you think, all right, okay, you're right. I've just, you know, I've got a few ideas about this or yes, I feel passionately about that. And now someone says, well, why don't you do it? Why don't you lead us? And yep, at that yep. time, you, you you can say, oh, look, no, whoa, sorry, sorry. You know, i I got lots of ideas. I'm a sort of armchair expert here. I don't want to get mm. involved. Uh, or you can say, yeah, all right. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll lead us into this. I'm going to, I'm not, you know, I want you to work with me. So don't just abandon me, but I'll commit myself to uh, changing where I need to change. And we want to do this together. I need you to be with me. But if you're prepared to be with me and support me up to a point, right? then uh, I, I'll take on this responsibility. Uh, and so I think people who are interested in leadership, uh, they, or at least if they find themselves, I think, with those opportunities, I think that's the point. That when you get to that stage, if somebody says, we want you to do this, would you do this? Uh, mm. You've got to then think, uh, if, well, all right, it's not that I'm the only person who could do this. But is there some yeah. good reason why I shouldn't? Right? If somebody mm -hmm. expresses confidence in you, then I think you need to think, yeah, actually, yes, I guess I do owe it to the people who've mm -hmm. supported me. And in some sense, if, if you're a believer, God is in this and yeah. is calling for this and I sense that, then all right, I go. Right? Uh, you know, uh, pardon, we were joking before uh, about your wonderful name, Caleb. 
and <laughs> I raised the episode in Joshua that people would recognize, you know, that uh, 10 said no and two said go, right? Mm. And that's the same That's the same thing that when Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, okay, we know there are giants. Well, not giants, but we, this, this isn't going to be easy, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but we feel called by God to do this and so we're going. Who's coming with us? Yeah. And off we go. And, but for that, I think it's a nice story because if you think about yourself, there's two parts of you saying go and 10 parts of you saying no, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and each, each of us struggles with that. You can always find lots of reasons why you shouldn't do it. Uh, mm. But if you're called and people are supporting you, then you really, really need to take that seriously. So in That's each of right. these cases, Caleb, in my experience, what's happened is that I've had a call out of the blue, if you like. Really? Uh, certainly the, well, it was, yeah, of all of the government appointments that I've had, which is essentially what the award was about, that was a phone call out of the blue, generally from um, the minister's uh, office, if it's a government appointment, um, or in the case of the Reserve Bank, uh, it was the Treasury Secretary uh, who saw me at a conference and said, oh, can I can have a word to you, and, and then says, look, you know, the government is, would like to appoint you to the Reserve Bank Board. How would you feel about that? Mm, and mm. so there, you know there it is right it's not that i'm ringing up the government and saying hey i'd like to do this or that it's not like that it, it's um i'm simply saying oh right so this turns up and then you think hmm, uh yes i do have the capacity to do that right i think i could make a contribution could i stuff it up of course i could stuff it up right? um, but under god do i feel as though i should run away from this and, and I've thought in those circumstances, no. Um, if I have the opportunity, well, it's an arrow prayer. If I don't have the opportunity, if I do have the opportunity, I'd commit it to prayer and see if I get a sense of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing, of course, you get a bit of time. Obviously, you ask people who know you well and who was, would be affected. So I've always asked my wife, you know, look, this has happened. Are you happy for me to do this? Yeah. And um, in the case of the Reserve Bank directorship, which involved me actually uh, stepping down as a partner of Deloitte as I was then. So it would have affected us. I, I said, you know, that's what's going to be involved here. Count the cost, Jesus says, yeah. when these yeah. come along. So I counted the cost and, and it would involve that. And my wife said to me, um, she said, this is something that you've always thought very highly of, right? Always uh, looked at the Reserve Bank and felt that it was such a great institution. And here's an opportunity now to, for you to be on the board. You need to mm -hmm. do this. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and so it wasn't, just, it wasn't just giving me permission. She was actually, and when I said, well, that would mean we'd have to change these arrangements, she says, you know, we changed the arrangements. You yeah. need to do this. <laughs> so um, that's also and, very and, helpful. Council. Hmm. And, and, and so there's a lot of things that you've been involved in that, that you do, and I love that. Mm -hmm stepping up as you've talked about the opportunity mm -hmm. comes and it sounds like you've often stepped forward where a lot of people uh hide behind things or maybe don't don't have the confidence or don't think they're up to i love the mm -hmm. fact that it sounds like you've stepped up more often than not mm -hmm. how, how do you then maybe and this is another leadership challenge for leaders mm -hmm. how do you then step out at the right time because if you uh, only said yes in your experience, Ian, you, you'd be you'd be overwhelmed now. There'd be too many things. At some point, you've got to say no and step down and change gears or put effort over here now, put effort over there now. How have you managed yeah. saying no and getting out at the right well, time? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very insightful question, uh, Caleb. You know the. <laughs> 
The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? And uh, that's a very helpful piece of advice that, that you, you, it's saying don't sit on the fence, right? Get, give this, if you're going to get in, get in. And if you're going to get out, get out. All right, fine. Now, how do you know the difference, which is your question? In my experience, Caleb, and, and, and this might sound strange to your listeners, I don't know whether it would, but I have found that doors open and close for me. And that, um, well, I'll give you a specific, for instance. So I was appointed by the Howard government to chair the Australian Fair Pay Commission, as it was called. Nowadays, it's called the Fair Work Commission. And that was quite a controversial appointment. Uh, the institution was controversial. When the Rudd government uh, took power from the Howard government uh, in 2007, the f first thing that the Howard government, sorry, the Rudd government did was to abolish the Fair Work Commission. And so the Fair, let me get this straight, to abolish the Fair Pay Commission, right? Mm -hmm. And create the Fair Work Commission. And so my position and the position of my fellow commissioners uh, were just abolished. Mm -hmm. And so that was the door closing, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's it. So I'd served my piece, I'd done my bit, and that, and that left. Right? In, in the case of the uh, Reserve Bank board membership, as I mentioned a moment ago, that came along when I was already at Deloitte as a partner, and to accept the Reserve Bank job would involve me standing down as a partner because I couldn't do the two jobs. So I had a choice there, and I've described how I made that choice. But that, as it were, the opening of one door closed another door. Mm -hmm. And the so the, the case, you know, that you, you mentioned now, so now I'm dean of the business school, I have a fixed-term contract. So there's a fixed end. Uh, but it's not impossible that that might be, you know, might be a year or so added to it, depending upon where the institution is. And so I will face exactly the question that you're asking. How will I decide whether I'd say yes to a bit of an extension if one's offered to me or no, I wouldn't. If, um, if I don't get the offer, of course, the answer's quite clear. That's fine. I've done mm -hmm. my piece. Off my go, right? But if I were put in that position, then I think the answer is you have to firstly think about uh, the institution that you're serving mm -hmm. uh, and uh, whether you can continue to contribute to the institution, you know, well, to the Reserve Bank. I was just invited to serve a second term on the Reserve Bank board by the Treasurer, by, by Mr. Frydenberg, who, who again rang me up and said, um, you know, would I, if the government would like me to, to serve a second term, uh, would I be willing to do that? Mm. Now, I could have said, look, thanks, Treasurer, I've had enough, that was good while it lasted, um, see you later, right? Thank you. Um, as it turns out, because I knew this was coming, that my term was coming up, I'd spoken again to my wife and I said, look, she said, well, do you think you still have things to contribute? And I said, well, I am now, because I've been there five years, I'm the, the, the longest serving external member of wow. that. Right? Just by, well because done. people can go, right? And mm. therefore I have a degree of experience now that has come yes. from having been there through this period. Right? Mm -hmm. So is that a value to bring to the board as new as new members come in? Uh, is it a value for me to sort of carry the corporate history for a little while? Yes. Uh, and, and I thought at the end of the day, I thought, yes, the answer is yes. So if the government offers me, 
uh, I would accept. And the government mm. did offer, and so I accepted. Now, mm. two is the maximum, so you know it won't happen again. But, but to answer your question, when you're in that situation, as I will face it quite potentially with the business school and the university, <clears throat> you know, would I extend if I were offered, or would I just stand down? I think the answer is, what can I contribute as yes. a leader uh, in right. continuing relative to the alternative, Caleb? Relative yeah. to the alternative. Because remember, you're always, as a leader, you are trying to bring forward, not in the case of the Reserve Bank, it's not my choice, but in the case of the business school, to grow my successes. Right? Yeah. Uh, and are they ready? Is the institution ready? Is it the right time? And when that time comes for the institution's sake, then yes, right? Then mm -hmm. it's time to go and do something else. Uh, but in my experience, and, and I, I want your listeners to hear that, uh, I don't think... This is often, as it were, done for you. Right? In, in my mm -hmm. case, I've had a strong sense of that, that I've known mm -hmm. when the hound of heaven has been saying to me, this is, go, go, go. <laughs> and, when suddenly, and when suddenly you feel as though the ladder has run out of rungs or you're at the end of the plank or whatever analogy you want to use, you suddenly think, "Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> now it's time to, to, to move on, right? I, I've had that clear sense as well. I hope that's helpful. It's, it, it, no, it's really helpful because I think it's a big, and it's something I wrestle with personally. I know a lot of the leaders I talk with, it's the challenge of when to step up, when to step back, when to step sideways. And and what I'm hearing from yourself is, is you know, an ability to step up when you're needed, but then also maybe ability to hold things loosely and, and wait for the right time to move on, move sideways. I think it's really special because we get... I think it's hard because when you serve something, an institution, a yes. church, a business, whatever, you, you, you also invest emotionally as well. And that can often be a real difficult thing when you need to step away because there's uh, you've got skin in the game. And I think the, the, the ability of a, a top leader is to hold things loose enough that they can step away without tripping over the emotion or feeling like they always need to be there. And I really love what you said about the successes that are coming through. Because I think that's something that I've had to learn is that no matter what leadership position you're in, it, it, you are always just there for a moment and there's always going to be a successor that comes after you. Uh, you won't be there forever. We all die one day anyway. Um, and, and having a leadership attitude of succession uh, is very empowering, not only for yourself, but uh, for everyone around you. So you, you've spoken a little bit about, yeah, please add to that if you'd like, Ian, and then let's- Well, just, just a minute, I just wanted to say that, that you hit the nail on the head there, Caleb, because I think it's very important for everyone, but certainly for leaders to remember that it's not just about you, right? Mm. It isn't about you. The, the um, a famous French uh, president and uh, military uh, leader by the name of uh, de Gaulle, General de Gaulle, right? Uh, once said uh, enigmatically that the graveyard is full of indispensable men. Right? Yeah. He, was, he said that at a time when we nowadays would use more inclusive language. Right? Um, <laughs> but, what he, but what he meant was, okay, that, that no one is indispensable. Right? The graveyard is full of indispensable men. In other words, yeah, that's right. Don't tell me that you are indispensable. It's only about you. Look over there. Right? Mm -hmm. There's 50 people lying there who all said the same thing. And what's happened? Well, the world has gone on, hasn't it? Yes. The world has gone on. So, I, so it's a way of saying you've, you've been given this as a gift, as you say, as an opportunity. Right? 
And yes, it is important that you throw yourself in emotionally and all the things you say, Caleb, are what make for great leadership. But at the end of the day, right, you need to be reminded that it isn't just about you, right? mm-hmm. that the graveyard is full of indispensable men. Mm. Well said. Really well said. Tell us as we finish off a bit, t- tell us a little bit about your faith. And I know you probably would have loved to talk more about this today, but uh, I, uh, it'd be good to hear a little bit. Last time I interviewed you back in 2017, um, you shared a bit about your story of um, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And and afterwards, uh, you know, it just impacted so many people. I remember having many conversations where people were really impacted by wow, this guy Ian, and he's on the Reserve Bank of Australia, and he's obviously a very clever guy. Um, and, and he didn't only grow up as a Christian and just follow it because it was his um, a family faith. You had a genuine uh, encounter with God and, and, and came to a place of really believing in him. It was just a fantastic story. So maybe you could uh, give us the story again. I, I would love to hear that of how you uh, came to faith and why that's important to you. Uh, it's kind of you to say those things, Caleb. But um, look, for people who are interested in them in greater detail, of course, I've written that story up uh, in a couple of books, actually, that, that I published, one called Economics for Life and the other one called uh, Confessions of a Meddlesome Economist. And, oh, wow. Uh, which, so you might, if people who wanted to follow it up could always look up those books and, and see the story written down. But the uh, short version is, yes, that that I uh, hadn't grown up in a Christian household, but my parents did send me to an Anglican school. So I had uh, an introduction to, if you like, formal Christianity. And as some people often remark, that uh, that was enough to inoculate me against the main disease. I had had an experience with a Christian at an Anglican school. Well, you know, that was it. Uh, I think that's a bit cynical, certainly with highlight, with hindsight, because it did. Um, while I didn't, I wasn't converted to the faith there. There was certainly God was at work there and and changing my heart. And there are many aspects of that experience, not the least uh, the wonderful hymns of the faith, which uh, in many cases I have learned by heart because I sang them every morning. Uh, now mm-hmm. have, of course, much greater meaning and comfort for me uh, laid down at an early time in my life. But no, the, the, the essence of the story, Caleb, is, is that I was challenged primarily by my wife, uh, who came to faith before I did, and uh, that, as many of the men listening would, would immediately recognise, can create tensions, uh, mm-hmm. as it did in my case. And, uh, you know, uh, it became clear to me with various um, episodes that my wife was determined on this front and that it wasn't just something that was a passing fad. And mm-hmm. so uh, I recognised that, you know, basically I, well, I had to take this, take, take this seriously. And it was mm-hmm. when she said to me that she was going to raise our two sons as Christians and bluntly I could do what I liked, right? I thought, <laughs> no, no, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm faced with my marriage versus, you know, holding out uh, to some, you know, atheist position or whatever it is I was trying to argue at the time, then I knew where my priorities lay. So mm-hmm. at that point I said, yeah, okay, well, I will... I'll agree to go to church, but I'll uh, only agree, pardon me, Caleb, <laughs> I'll only agree to go to an Anglican church because I said, it, and this is maybe a compliment for you down there in Skype, is that uh, I knew that an Anglican church was at least harmless, right? <laughs> uh, if I'd come to your church, Caleb, I mightn't have had any hope at all, right? <laughs> but I was, uh, I thought, well, at least an Anglican church is harmless, and so I figured it was 
no problem going there. As it turned out, of course, God had all of that well and truly under control and, wow. and brought me very quickly under the influence of a, um, a man who's now still a dear friend uh, of long standing, uh, who was at the time the Anglican minister. He went on to be a bishop of the Anglican Church and was a very mm-hmm. distinguished Australian in his own right. Um, he happened to be the vicar, and so very soon after I arrived, um, he uh, bowled up to have a yarn to me, and it turned out that he wasn't just the vicar, he was also an economist. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so God had parked, had parked me under the authority of someone who was a professional colleague. And you might <laughs> think, well, what, what relevance does that have? Well, the relevance is that I couldn't, pardon me, Caleb, I couldn't immediately dismiss him as somebody who was deluded, right? It's sort of, you know, cottoned onto some superstition because, after all, he was an economist. I mean, give me a break, right? The guy you know, is, is sort of a decent guy. He knows what he's doing, right? Wow. And so, anyway, uh, he, uh, I think it was the second week in, he came up straight up, as economists do, you know, face-to-face. <laughs> and, he, and he said to me, he said, you don't believe a word of this, do you? And I said, no, I don't. Right? Wow. And he said, yeah, he said, I figured that. He said, well, how long are you going to keep coming here so long as you don't believe a word of it? And I thought, hmm, that's a reasonable question. So I said, well, listen to me. I said, you listen to me, right? I said, economist to economist. Right? I said, if you can explain to me why I should believe it, right? thinking to myself, you haven't got any chance. I said, if you can explain to me why I should believe this, then I'll believe it. Yeah, wow. And he, and he said, do you mean that? And I said, economist to economist. I said, why would I say that? Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, you got no chance. And he looked at me and he said, you're on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's great. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, yeah. He said, have you got a Bible? I said, oh, I could find one. He said, well... <laughs> He said, you're happy for me to come around to your place on a Tuesday night for a few weeks? I said, oh, yeah. He said, wow. cool. He said, then get that Bible. He says, you read it. Look in there. You find a book called Mark. He said, you start reading that book. He said, I'll be turning your place Tuesday night. So stay for an hour. He said, we'll, wow. we'll do a few of these. He said, by the time we've read the book, he said, then we'll have another conversation. And I wow. said, oh, really? Yeah. So anyway, we did. And we started reading this. And he said, now, listen, he said, um, here's the rules of the game, right? He said, you read that. He said, and you can ask me anything you want to ask. I said, really? You mean that? He said, anything. I said, all right. So I read the book, and as I went through the Gospel of Mark, I had all sorts of questions for him, right? all sorts yeah. of, well, you know, really, so this is going to get you, right? So I thought, I'll go. <laughs> anyway, what, what was um, uh, most impressive, Caleb, uh, you've been interested in this as a pastor yourself, is that the thing that impressed me most was not that he could explain away or give me answers to various questions. It's when he would say, yeah, good question. Don't know the mm. answer to that. Mm. And I would say, you don't know the answer. And he'd say, no, I don't know the answer to that. And I'd say, well, hang on, let me get this straight. You don't know the answer to that question, and yet you still believe this to be true. He said, mm. yeah, that's right. And I said, well, how's that supposed to work? And he said, well, he says, I reckon there are lots of things that you don't understand, right? And yet you also believe them to be true. Isn't that right? Wow. And I thought, yeah, you got me there. Right. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we kept going through this and we finished the book of Mark. He said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I'll give you this much. I said, I don't think it was made up. He says, oh, yeah, why not? I said, well, I said, if it was made up, they wouldn't have, you know, had the, uh, 
Jesus expressing exasperation with the disciples and you know all these things that are going wrong and this and that. Mm. So you just wouldn't, right? It, it would have to be a smooth story. And he said, "Yeah, good, good." He said, "Well, then, if that's the case, what do you think about the things that are said?" Right? You know, he says he's God. You actually believe that? <laughs> and I said, "Well, I don't know." He said, "Right, fair enough." He said, "Well, you do one more thing." I said, what's that? He said, I want you to meet me in town. So he went into what was then uh, the Ridley College bookshop. I'm actually on the oh, board yeah. of Ridley College these days. Had a I noticed that too. And he met, yep. <laughs> I met him there. And I, uh, he said, oh, I said, have you ever been to a bookshop like this before? And I, I said, no, I haven't. He said, good. He said, come inside. So I went inside and I saw this bookshop in those days. what it was like you know, a library. It's completely arrayed with books on theology and religious topics and this and that. And I'm um, an academic, Caleb. I'm a scholar. Mm. Right? Mm. And I was immediately, my first feeling was to feel completely, um, well, what's the right word? Yeah, embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought, here I am, I call myself a learned person. And mm. I had no idea that there yes. was so much scholarship about the religious, the Christian religious traditions. And I thought, oh, boy, oh, boy, have you mm. underestimated this? <laughs> anyway, so I went in and, he, and I said, well, he said, oh, look, he says, I want to show you a couple of books. And I said, oh, all right. So he went across to the shelf and he pulled off uh, in, from the apologetic section, he pulled off a couple of volumes. I can't tell you what they were now. And he opened them up and he said, hey, take a look at this. Right? <laughs> Looked at it. And I can see written down there, Caleb, a number of the arguments that I'd been putting to him. Right? Yeah. And, and, of course, you know, responses that people have made over the years to these different propositions in this book of Apollo, mm. Christian apologetic defense of the faith. And I looked at this and he looked at me and I looked at him and he looked at me and he said, you weren't the first person to think of these things, were you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, all right, all right. I said, how old is this book? It's all about 300 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, he said, no, no, he said, I didn't want to really embarrass you, but just make the point. And I said, yeah, yeah, I get it. He said, no, he said, I want to buy your book. And I, I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said, he said, well, he said, here. And he bought me a commentary on Mark off the shelf. Oh, wow. And, and he said, he said, look, here's a book, right? He said, now this book goes through that same gospel. And, and there are scholars here who wrestle with a lot of the questions that you raised and, and many that you didn't. Mm. And and I said, oh, what? So the answers are there? He said, no, 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 no. He said, the answers aren't there. He said, Mm. a lot of the questions you asked, no one knows the answer. Mm. He said, but here's a discussion, a scholarly discussion about, you know, whether it might be this or whether it might be that and so forth. And here, I'll I'll buy this for you. And I I said, well, very generous. So So he bought it for me and I read the book. And again, it just reinforced the impression that I had completely underestimated this and, and, you know, these sort of cheap one-liners that I was coming yeah, up with. Yeah, yeah. some of them are. But it was pathetic, Caleb. That's what it was. <laughs> it, was it was pathetic. They, they were cheap shots uh, relative to the sort of deep scholarship and discussion and argument and disagreement, which you yeah. well know you can find about all of these same things, right? Yeah. And so I realised that the, the notion that somehow I was being sold a bill of goods and that Christianity was just a sort of fluff and that you know people were deluded and, and, and it was a crutch and all that sort of stuff, just completely fell away. I thought, no, no, no. Mm. Anyway, so um, uh, about a couple of weeks after that, it was Christmas time, actually, and I, I went to church on Christmas Day. 
uh, with my wife and, and two sons, and uh, he was conducting the Christmas Day service, and and uh, he'd preached about uh, prophet, priest, and king, and the you know three gifts and so forth, as you would recognise. And anyway, came to communion, mm-hmm. uh, as we do in the ancient church, and there was a call for communion, and and people started getting up from their pews to go forward to the rail for communion, and I sat there, Caleb, and I thought to myself. What do you know? <laughs> it's actually true. Wow. So I got up and I went forward to the communion rail. Anyway, he came along and he saw me there and um, he gave me communion right, and went along with the rest. And then straight after the service, he came straight down to where I was sitting and he said, you took communion today. And I said, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he said, why? Mm. And I said, because it's true. Wow. That was it. He gave me a great big hug and I was in the kingdom, brother. Wow. That's such a fantastic story. Well, it's a little bit like, not that I'm comparing myself with C.S. Lewis, but it's a little bit like, you know, I got in the sidecar at Oxford, not a Christian, right? I got out. (laughs) It's a little bit like that. I came to church that day, not a Christian. And I went home from church that day, a Christian. And and what's the difference? Well, the difference is that, as you know, Wesley said, there was a strange sort of quickening at yeah. the time of the. And I, I just thought to myself, you know what? It's actually true. Yeah. So you there's a mixture of, of, yeah, rational, uh, rational investigation, a bit of embarrassment, mm. a bit of prompting, a bit of pushing, a bit of the hound of heaven. A bit of yeah. God, you know, manipulating people in my life. That is to say, bringing this fellow who's who, um, you know, whose opinion I would have a high value of anyway, yeah. because he's a professional and all this sort of thing. And it, but at the end of the day, and this is for the benefit of listeners who haven't made that leap. Um, so did I take it on because I could prove, like mathematically, that it was correct? No. no. Mm. Did I? Uh, but but did I just accept it in a wave of emotion? Uh, no. mm. Mm. So was it, in that sense, was it the same way, similar? Well, yeah, the same way that I would accept other things as true. In other mm. words, a bit of investigation, talking to other people you respect, getting a sense of what it's about, thinking about it, right? And then one day basically saying, you know what? I think it's actually right. Mm. And and how, you know, what, what pushes you over that? And in the case of Christian belief, you know, we, we believe that that is actually, as Paul points out, you know, it's a gift. Of God, it's the Spirit of God that that um, mm. you know. And why does He work then? And why does He work well? He works because God loves us. That's the point, right? Yeah. And He earnestly wishes for us to do this. And mm. is it all up to us? Well, we have to make a choice. But do you make a choice completely independently? Well, that then, brothers and sisters, that's the mystery, right? Mm. At, at mm. what point, you know, is God actually pushing you by the Spirit? Uh, are mm. you doing all this under your own steam? Right? I mean, mm. you know. But at the end of the day, as the um, as the blind man says in, <laughs> in John 9, Caleb, I don't know. All I know <laughs> is this. I was blind and now I see. <laughs> yeah. Well done. That's a, that's a, it's a great way to sum it up. What a fantastic story. I think that... Uh, that priest sounds like a much better pastor than I am. I think he he really uh, he, he really understood you, didn't he? He journeyed with you. He understood you. Uh, he tracked with you well. Very very clever. I think that's great. 
Well, but that's also a gift from God, Caleb. So you see, we're, mm. we're still close friends at all at these years later, right? So, so don't be too hard on yourself, mate. I don't think this was calculated. But he was just responding, you know, in the same way that I was responding. Uh, yeah. But, the, but the, the difference is, yes, the difference is that as we were talking about leadership before, he had an opportunity and he took it. Right? Yeah, good point. And in a sense, I had an opportunity as well, right? You know, mm. if if you explain this in a way that I can believe it, I'll believe it. Right? Mm. And he said, do you mean that? And I said, yeah, why would I lie to you? Yeah. Right? Okay, you're yeah. wrong. So there's a sort of, yeah. you know, two two characters who are sharing their, their professional expertise because yes. he would be saying the same thing about some economic proposition you know, i'd say yeah i don't believe it what so is unemployment going to go up or down well i did well you show me that type yeah, of thing yeah. uh, was brought into to play in this instance as the sort of preliminary to what was ultimately a conversion story yeah i always find it so ironic ian because we live in this supposed uh rational age uh and christianity is more rational than any other religion, than any other ideology. Uh, there's there's far more evidence uh, for, for, for Christ and the case for Christ, as we know, than any other ancient figure. And as you found out, there's a phenomenal amount of uh, literature, probably more than anything else in the world. Uh, the existence of God has been studied. The Bible has been studied. And uh, I remember looking into a few years ago, the whole new atheist uh, movement with Hitchens and Sam Harris and all of that and uh, all of their arguments against Christianity mm-hmm. are all arguments that have been dealt with for centuries and yeah. centuries even millennia and uh, yeah. but it captures a new generation that think they, they understand and they see the light and religion is just a waste of time but it's like we've been here many times over the last 2000 years they're just old age uh, age-old questions that have been asked that have been answered time and time again and I think um Again, the, the, the ignorance of, of people around Christianity is really sad because if people like yourself, if people would be open to listen, uh, to, to, mm. to search for the truth. And this is what I often say to my friends who aren't believers, uh, is that I haven't come to Christianity because I grew up in it as a child. I've come to Christianity because I sought the truth and I found the truth in it. And I continue to find the truth and I encourage people to mm. seek the truth, not to yes. do church, church activities or to try and live some good life like you should, because Jesus said, but it's deeper than that. Seek the truth and uh, see what you'll find. And obviously as Christians, we believe that at the end of the day, the truth, the bottom of all of the truth is you'll bump into Jesus eventually. So uh, it's, I love your story because it's, 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 it's got that strong rational um, part of the journey, which I think is often underestimated and, uh, and missed and, and even misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, what they need is a good, good trip to the Ridley College bookshop. <laughs> Still, <laughs> you can go along to your local Kurok. But, uh, but uh, the other point I would make, you know, give uh, my friend Greg Sheridan uh, a plug that yes. uh, Greg is a foreign correspondent for the Australian newspaper. Some of your yes, um, his book, my last book, is a very Catholic Christian. And uh, Greg's book, Christians: The Urgent mm-hmm. Case for Jesus in Our Lives, right? Uh, is a terrific read for people mm. who are like I was, right? And of course, Greg does exactly what you just said, Caleb. He takes people through all of that evidence and, and pointing out, you know, there are there are there are more extant copies of the Christian Gospels in existence, mm. you know, copies of the original in manuscript, you know, in vellum and yeah. manuscript. More of those in existence 
than any other ancient document. And I mean, like, by orders of magnitude. And yes. so, you know, we have no, no, no problem believing that Thucydides ever wrote or that, you know, Julius Caesar lived and Cleopatra, right? We've got no problem believing that they all existed. And yet mm. the evidence written down that I can literally go to a museum or a great library and show you, right, that's tiny <laughs> alongside yeah. the evidence that these Gospels were actually written mm. uh, and uh, that the events that were described there uh, actually occurred. So anyway, mm. uh, if people haven't read Greg's book, uh, it's a great read, and uh, in, a, in it you'll also hear some stories about Christians, including, of course, our Prime Minister and uh, mm. other figures who, who um, have their stories briefly mentioned in the same book. Yeah, no, I, I've noticed that book. It's a great one. Look, Ian, let's tie it up for today. Uh, it's just been a fantastic mm. conversation. We really appreciate uh, your time, uh, everything that you've told us about the economy, the uh, that the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, your journey, the uh, Order of Australia, how you've come to faith, all of it's just been very, very rich and uh, super interesting. I've, I've, I've had a great time. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Caleb. Well, best wishes to you and your family and, of course, to all of the listeners. Keep safe and well. God bless you. Thanks, man. I trust you are impacted by that Leadership Lessons podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast. Please comment down below and please review the podcast and share it with a friend. Doing this inspires us and helps others to find the podcast. See you next time.